Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As this week comes to a close, our hearts go out to the Asian American community for the murderous attacks on Asian American women and businesses, including Those are two locations in our station's neighborhood. This is a tragedy for our community, for Atlanta, and the nation. On behalf of all of us at WABE, we grieve with the families of those lost. Prejudice toward Asian Americans has a long history in our country, especially on the West Coast. Later this hour, we'll listen back to an interview with the author Lisa C. Her novel, China Dolls, is set in San Francisco and explores the forgotten story of the Chinese-American nightclubs there in the 1930s and 40s. First, innovative bicycles and the environmental impact of design. One year ago, when stay-at-home orders changed daily life throughout the world, the role of bicycles transformed. More people riding bikes dictates the need for safer places to ride, and that has an impact on the design of cities and towns. With that in mind, the Museum of Design Atlanta, MODA, presents a new exhibition, Bike to the Future. Laura Flusch is the executive director of MODA, She's with us now via Zoom. Laura, welcome back to City Lights. Thanks so much, Lois. It's great to speak with you. Moda has been closed for in-person exhibitions since March of last year. It's reopening with Bike to the Future. How has it been for the museum during the time of virtual workshops, events, and programs online? It has been, like so much of the pandemic for so many people, it has been simultaneously, enormously 
lonely, and at the same time, frantically busy. Hmm. So we have missed our colleagues and our friends who come in the museum and the Moda family, but we have had a great exercise in learning to pivot quickly, learning to bring the museum to people via new channels. And one of the real upsides of that is that we have attracted an international audience for our programming. So we're really excited about that. Just before we went into quarantine and the pandemic shut down everything, I interviewed you about the biomimicry exhibit, Learning from Nature, which marked the beginning of Moda's mission to call attention to climate change. How did that project pan out? That project has had an interesting life, Lois. It opened in the Moda Galleries about nine days before we closed to the public. Of course, it sat here for a long time with no one able to visit it. We did a Matterport scan eventually to create a virtual exhibition that anyone can visit on our website. So that's great. And in fact, it has been visited probably more than the exhibition would have been visited, you know, in the three or four months that it would have been up at Moda. Recently, we faced a situation in which some of the people who had loaned things to that exhibition needed those objects back, which we understand. So we took the exhibition down, but we consolidated some of the information from it and reconfigured it. And we have installed a condensed version of the exhibition at the Candida Building for Innovative Sustainable Design at Georgia Tech. So it's getting a second life, which is, of course, what the Candida Building is all about. So we're really excited about that. How did the biomimicry show learning from nature inform this new exhibit? Well, both of those exhibitions, Learning from Nature and the new one, Bike to the Future, are part of our climate and change project. So at Moda, we believe that design inspires change, that it transforms lives, and that it makes the world a better place. And as part of that large task that that design has in our world, we believe it's one of the most powerful tools we have for taking on complicated 21st century problems, and climate change is the biggest of them all. So we uh, set out in 2020 to look at how designers are helping us face climate change and reverse climate change. Obviously, things have been a bit interrupted, but we're continuing that in 2021. So the biomimicry exhibition, which shows us how nature has created sustainable systems for millions, billions of years, will live on at Georgia Tech. And we will bring Bike to the Future into our galleries here at Moda, or we brought Bike to the Future into our galleries here at Moda to talk about alternative transportation forms and new ways, or not not especially new, but ways to get around that don't require cars and are better for the environment. So let's talk about the show. What new inventions will we see? Yeah, it's a really interesting exhibition, Lois. It has about 35 bicycles in it. It looks at a couple of different ways that bicycles are evolving in the 21st century and and design jumps that are being made there. So the exhibition showcases some bikes that are meant to help us shift from car-centered cultures because of concerns about climate change, or maybe we're just tired of being in the car sometimes. It also looks at the fact that in some cities, it's easier to get around by bike than car, but we need to carry stuff. So we need cargo bikes. We need solutions for carrying our groceries or our kids or whatever we're, we're porting around 
Something that's really taken off in 2020, electric bicycles that let us go farther and move faster and manage hills in a city like Atlanta better. And then it looks at bikes that are made with interesting materials or technologies like 3D printing, or there's one bike that is entirely recycled from Nespresso capsules, <laughs> if you can believe it. And there's a bamboo tandem bike. Oh my. Would you talk about Baston Lay sandwich bike design? Sure. The sandwich bike is a bike that you order and it comes to you in a box. And so the pieces are there. They are made of wood and it is yours to assemble. So they are CNC cut and you can put them together. So it's made out of a sustainable material and is a kind of DIY project. What can you tell us about the Van Gogh bike path in the Netherlands? Yeah, so another interesting aspect of the exhibition is that it looks at bike infrastructure as it is expanding across the globe and here in our city. And one of the most beautiful examples of bike infrastructure in the exhibition is the Van Gogh Bicycle Path, which was designed by a Dutch architect and artist whose name is Dan Rosengard. He works out of Rotterdam, but the path itself is in Eindhoven. And it was created as part of the 125th anniversary of the death of Van Gogh. Van Gogh lived in Eindhoven for a few years, and the city appears as a backdrop in his painting. So what Dan Rosegard did was to create a bike path, it's a little over a half a mile long, that uses the background from Van Gogh's well-known painting, Starry Night, as a pattern. And so he embedded the bike path with stones that absorb sunlight during the day and then are luminescent and glowing at night in the pattern from Starry Night. It's, it's really beautiful. And one exciting thing is that Dan Rosengard is speaking at MODA on the 25th of March. Wow. We will talk about some of those upcoming conversations. First, I was hoping you'd describe some of the innovative bike accessories on display. You know, the more we move around by bicycle, the more we often want to adapt our bicycles to meet our specific needs. So there are a variety of accessories on, on view. They range from magnetic LED lights that you can put anywhere on your bike to improve your visibility. Um, and then you can take them off and put them in your pocket at the end of your ride so no one steals them. There are other lights that can be screwed into the end of your handlebar and they work as turn signals to make you more visible. There's um, a helmet that can be flattened so that it's very easy to slip into your backpack or your bag during the day. It doesn't have to just sit on your desk and look like you put your bike helmet on your desk. And then various kinds of seats and bags and panniers for attaching to your bike in order to be able to better carry things. You mentioned Dan Rosengarten's upcoming virtual conversation. Moda has several discussions with architects and engineers. Would you tell us some of the highlights? On Saturday, March the 20th, we'll be talking to Dan Rosengard about landscapes of the future. So he's the designer of the Van Gogh bike path. 
He also spends a lot of time imagining what our world will look like in the future. He's very much of a visionary. So he'll be talking about other projects that they've done as well, not all of them bike-related. So for example, he recently did a project called Grow, and working off the science of light, he lit an entire agricultural field with LED lights so that it was an incredibly beautiful installation in a natural setting but also meant to make the plants stronger and help them flourish. On March the 25th, we'll be talking to Dan Reckers, who is part of Van Moof Bikes, a Dutch company that has flourished like so many electric biking companies during the pandemic. Their mission is to get the next million people on bicycles. And then on May the 20th, we're going to be talking to an American electric bike producer. His name is Zach Shefflin. He has a company called Civilized Cycles. It's a bicycle that has fold-out panniers on both back wheels, kind of inspired by old-fashioned motorcycles. And there's one of those in the exhibition. And Zach will be telling us about what he thinks bike riders are looking for, putting those bikes into production, and now struggling to get them produced fast enough. Last year, the BBC published The Great Bicycle Boom of 2020, a lengthy article about the dramatic increase in bicycle sales and the surge in exercise. When we've returned to normal, do you think the bicycling craze will continue? I think it will. We've had a very long time to get used to different ways of being now. And you're right, bicycling has boomed in this time. So it's hard for me to imagine we'll all just want to jump right back in our cars and put the bikes back in the garage. I also think we have generations of young people who are very passionate about climate change and see alternative transportation as a good way to make a difference on a personal level. And then there's the issue of transportation mobility or mobility justice. Bicycles are cheaper. We can take them more places if we have the infrastructure to do so. That will be part of why bicycles will continue to flourish. And I know that in Atlanta, we're making big strides in that way. In September 2019, the mayor's office announced a two-year, $5 million plan to make Atlanta streets safer for everyone, but especially for pedestrians and cyclists and those on other mobility devices. And so there are local projects underway to make our city more bikeable. We've seen a huge rise in biking in Atlanta. It's hard for me to imagine that that would not continue. Mode is offering a range of events demonstrating the power of design to imagine and create a better world. That's called Design for Justice. Why did you create this program? For us, Lois, it goes back to the idea of design as an agent of change and designers as people whose charge in life is to help us navigate the now and be ready for the future. Designers are uniquely poised to help us take on those big issues and making a just and equitable world is one of the biggest We have used design in the past also to design inequities into our world. And so using the same tool to remove those inequities is important as well and to understand the difference and how we can do better. Please tell us 
about the new visitors' experience to the museum and COVID-19 health and safety protocols at MoDA? As we reopen, we will be shifting our entrance protocols in a way that I hope visitors will find extraordinary rather than a compromise. We are shifting to a system of private visits. We are allowing visitors to reserve a spot at Moda that is solely for them and the people that they choose to include in their visit, whether it's someone in whatever pod they've established during the pandemic or their families, where they're more comfortable coming by themselves. I hope that it will be a really wonderful and delightful time in which people can come and and visit Moda, feeling that they've made the choice about who they're here with, and they can relax, enjoy seeing, bike to the future, and leave refreshed. Laura Flush. Congratulations on Bike to the Future, and good luck with Moda reopening. Thank you, Lois. Moda Executive Director Laura Flusch. Bike to the Future opens tomorrow and runs through June 5th. More information about the virtual discussions will be on our website, wabe.org City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The tragic attacks on Asian Americans in Atlanta this week brought attention to the area of Piedmont and Cheshire Bridge. Cheshire Bridge Road has been called Atlanta's Red Light District. It's a street that comes to life after hours with strip clubs, drag performance venues, massage parlors, and adult shops. Over the last decade, restaurants and clubs have closed to make way for apartments and mixed-use developments. In 2017, I spoke with photographer Terry Darnell, who documented this street for a period of 10 years. Her series of photos was published as a book called Crossing Cheshire Bridge. Here's how Terry Darnell became a photographer. I got my start, you know, at the Showcase School of Photography where I started taking classes, and I uh, did that 10 years ago. In the first year, I took every class that they had to offer, and then I started going to the Atlanta Photography Group Critiques and getting some feedback on my work, and I quickly realized that, you know, I just can't show a bunch of random pictures up there to get a critique. I needed a project. Yeah, and this is your neighborhood, too. Right. What better way to go than just be able to walk down the street from my house and walk up and down Cheshire Bridge Road and and see a lot of interesting characters? Well, it is quite a street, I must say. And my husband and I live nearby, and it was so shocking to me when we found our house in Morningside, which we love, that the kind of places one found on Cheshire Bridge, and I'm not talking about the restaurants or the merchants, but 
some of the more unusual places in a city like Chicago, where we were from, would all be confined to a district that wasn't near a residential area. How did this culture emerge? Well, it's it's kind of interesting that what actually started back in the early 1800s when Captain Cheshire moved here from Maryland, he served in the War of 1812. And then after that, he moved here on uh, Cheshire Bridge Road, and he had a big farm track. And in fact, the Colonnade Restaurant was the house that he lived in. So the Colonnade Restaurant got established once the farming community started getting busted up from a farm track into residential tracks in like the 1930s. From there, it started becoming more commercial when the railroad line moved in here. So the residential communities were kind of the middle part of the residential sections. Mm -hmm. And then on the outlying borders, that's where the commercial industry started really popping up and happening. In fact, one of the things about the cultural diversity that we have here was James Brown, the godfather of soul. Back in the the 1960s, he started a rhythm and blues bar on Cheshire Bridge Road. And later in the 1970s, that became Sweet Gum, and it was known as the Drag Club Show of the South. And how did it evolve from soul music venue to drag queen? Well, James Brown moved on into other places. And then it was sold, and then it became another show bar. And so this show bar then produced some drag queens that are famous and went on to Las Vegas, and they produced movies like Charlie Brown, Rachel Wells, Hot Chocolate. And there's some wonderful drag queens that are still around today that come out and perform. And you have photographed a number of them beautifully in Crossing Cheshire Bridge. You've had a lot of no's before people allowed you into their businesses. How did you convince them to let you into these various places on Cheshire Bridge? Well, when I first started, I would walk up and down Cheshire Bridge, and I was really nervous because, you know, you hear about the red light district and and crime, and I thought, well, you know what, This this is my project, and this is what I'm passionate about, and it's my community, and I wanted to capture this community. So. And we should add, you are a petite, no, lo- I'm... lovely woman when <laughs> walking at night on right. this nefarious strip. It could be Yeah, scary. I'm harmless, you know. But it, <laughs> You're harmless. I'm harmless, but, it, uh, but, there are, but, you know, I'll get into that other question in a second, but it doesn't come without risk, Lois, sure. walking up and down the street. I've been circled many times by cars thinking, you know, maybe I was a prostitute. And uh, I had a couple of times where I've been chased. Uh, so, really? Yeah, I, I was across the street from the Sitco gas station, and there was an apartment building there, and I was taking pictures. It was dusk, and the light was just gorgeous, and I was just waiting for that perfect light to get the great picture of the, the gas station lights. Out came this guy from there, and he saw me across the street, and he started running a across the street and it was it was like one of those moments where you just kind of stop in time and I was scared to death and so I started pointing my camera in different directions trying to say well I'll just make make it look like I'm taking pictures up and down the street well he waited for the traffic to go by he started running to the middle of the road like he was coming after me and then right in that split second when he was in the middle of the road I ran across the street as fast as I could, and he turned around, and it was like slow motion. Mm. And I went over into the Babylon Cafe and just sat there until uh, things changed. Wow. 
So things like that do happen, but it's a rare thing. Ten years that I've been on Cheshire Bridge Road, I was just one of the only incidences where I, I came and, across and, something and like that. And, you know, a lot of your work was done in, a lot of the work in the book was done in drag clubs. And they, drag queens aren't scary or mean. Oh, not at all. I mean, it's uh, when the Sweet Gumhead had a lot of drag queen shows, and that sort of evolved along Cheshire Bridge Road. There's so many opportunities to come and watch some wonderful shows, and it's for all communities. There's, you know, a lot of people have their bachelorette parties at some of the drag queen shows. I mean, they're just, they're harmless, and they're a lot of fun. Absolutely. Are people happy to be photographed, those who don't chase you away? (laughs) Well, you know, that's how I kind of got people to trust me on the the street is um, I was getting a lot of no's. And uh, people were wondering what I was up to, you Mm -hmm. know. I mean, who am I walking up and down the street with a camera when there's some other activities going on that people don't want to have photographed? Uh, My friend, Chip Simone, he said, well, why don't you create a book? And so I created this small little book of pictures that I'd taken on Cheshire Bridge Road. And I would walk up and down the road and into the establishments, and I'd show them my book. And they thought it was wonderful, and they wanted to be in my book. And I said, well, maybe you can be in my book. But I didn't want to pose people, so I never posed people for my photographs. I let them be in their natural environment. But they know, all knew I was there when I took their pictures. I have over, like, 20,000 pictures on Cheshire Bridge Road. We should add that there are traditional venues, some very fine restaurants. There are all kinds of places along Cheshire Bridge Road, but it is... Uh, those more on the fringes of society that are the most eye-catching. And and I guess that's more of what you had hoped to capture. Who are some of the folks embedded in the identity of Cheshire Bridge that you capture here in the book? Oh, some of my favorites, some of them have names that I probably can't say, but <laughs> on the radio. But... Oh, Reginald Perry is all Dynasty St. James, just an amazing performer and performs over at the uh, jungle. And so does Stephen Glenn Dills. He has a name of Something Pudding and uh, just wonderful performers. So you please come on out to the jungle and the, the heretic and the BJs and, and, and have a good time. But also there's the Armorettes. And I wanted to tell you about the Armorettes because please. the Armorettes are a group of campy drag queens that have been performing since the 1970s. And so they started because they wanted to have a halftime show when the Atlanta Falcons were playing. And so they wanted to have something to do at the bar when that was being televised. So they started dressing up in drag and performing and having some entertainment. And then that turned into be the Armorettes. And now the Armorettes perform at the Heretic here on Cheshire Bridge Road and also all around the city of Atlanta. And they have raised over $2.1 million so far for AIDS and other local charities, $1 at a time. That's fantastic. Ultimately, what does the street mean to you, Terry? How might you defend it to people who see it as the underbelly of Atlanta? It's my community. It's where I live. It's where people work and play. If there was just apartments, there wouldn't be any place to go, any entertainment. There's also the lost and found youth, and they support the homeless youth. There's over 900 homeless youth on the streets at any given day around in our communities. And so those are the great things about Cheshire Bridge Road that really I hope that they stay. Photographer Terry Darnell.
Her series, Crossing Cheshire Bridge, was published as a book in 2016. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Lisa C.'s Chinese-American heritage informs the themes and content of all of her books. Her novel, China Dolls, explores the much-forgotten story of Chinese-American nightclubs in the 1930s and 40s through three young female performers. This story, set in San Francisco, mirrors the real lives of Chinese-American entertainers in clubs like the Forbidden City. When I spoke with Lisa C. in 2015, she began by reading a passage from the novel. A woman isn't just one thing. The past is in us, constantly changing us. Heartache and failure shift our perspectives, as do joy and triumphs. At any moment, on any given day, we can be friends, competitors, or enemies. We can be generous or stingy, loving or petty, helpful or untrustworthy. That's Lisa C. reading from her book, China Dolls. Lisa C., thank you for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Well, China Dolls is about three women, Grace, Helen, and Ruby. It was Ruby's passage we just heard you read. And as their personal stories unfold, we learn a lot about the social and political history of the time and a lot about the entertainment world as well. What motivated you to write this book? Well, I had heard about these Asian-American performers really my entire life. Uh, In the 1930s and 40s, of course, it was the nightclub era across the country. And in San Francisco, there was this group of, and they were billed as Chinese-American nightclubs, that had performers who were known as the Chinese Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, the Chinese Frank Sinatra, the Chinese... Houdini, the you know Chinese fill in the blank. And sometimes they would travel around the country going club to club. And when they did that, they didn't say we're going out on the Borscht Belt or we're going out on the Chitlin Circuit. They'd say we're going out on the Chop Suey Circuit. And so for me, I just had had this long interest in those performers and who they were and what motivated them to do that and how they did it at a time when there was still so much prejudice and it was, you know, very hard for performers of color to be able to perform anywhere, actually. These were people who were extremely talented, that if they hadn't been Asian, well, not anybody can be Fred Astaire after all, but they could have had even bigger careers and Mm -hmm. they might have become household names in, in ways that they didn't. When did you first learn about them? Well, I I mean, I think from the time I was a very small child, my I grew up in a very large Chinese-American family in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is obviously different than San Francisco. Los Angeles has Hollywood. 
But the difference there was that I knew a lot of people who, again, back in the 30s and 40s, had been extras in films. And so they had this counterpart, really, in San Francisco. So I guess because they were all kind of performers and things like that, that these were people who were talked about in my family. And people that you would see sometimes in an old film, and they'd say, oh, look, there's so-and-so, and, and, you know, everyone would have to stop to watch this little clip of some very, really very obscure performer, but who was pretty big in the Asian American community. I'm very interested in stories that have been lost, forgotten, deliberately covered up, you know, periods and moments that just fall away and disappear. And so I had really wanted to go out and talk to people who were performers or the sons and daughters of performers before those stories disappeared completely. And in fact, you interviewed some women who were very famous in the time period. Were the stories of Helen Ruby and Grace based upon the actual women you interviewed who were by then in their 80s and 90s? Some parts of their stories are, not all of them. I think you could say that Ruby, for example, part of her story is very much influenced by what happened to Dorothy Toy, who was considered to be the Chinese Ginger Rogers. There were a lot of people who claimed the title, but she really was the Chinese Ginger Rogers. And she happened to be Japanese. Mm. And so there were things that happened to her during the war that I was able to kind of riff off of. You know, I took some of those details, but not all of them. And then Ruby is also influenced by a woman who is named Noelle Toy, and she was considered to be the Chinese Sally Rand, you know, a fan dancer, mm -hmm. a bubble dancer. So I took different aspects of different people that I interviewed. I had access to some oral histories that had been done in the 1970s by the Chinese American Museum in New York and also a man who was the longtime director of the Angel Island Immigration Foundation, uh, which is the island where so many Asians came in through San Francisco. It's considered the Ellis Island of the West. And one day he called me. He said, you know, somebody told me you're working on this book. And it turned out that this guy, when he graduated from college back in the 1970s, he thought he wanted to be a playwright and write about the Forbidden City nightclub, which was the most famous of all of the clubs. Well, he went out, he interviewed about a dozen people, all of them gone now. And he never became a playwright. He never wrote the play. But he said to me that day, I'd like to give you all of these interviews. Wow. So, you know, even though I hadn't been able to personally interview them, I was able to use those transcripts and their stories and the details of their lives of, you know, what it was like in the dressing room and what it was like out on the road and, and just all of those details that I wouldn't really be able to find unless there were people who could tell me about it. The Forbidden City nightclub is the apex of those 
Chinese American entertainment clubs and where your young women eventually end up dancing. Tell us about the proprietor. I think he's an interesting character, too. His name was Charlie Lowe. He had come from a small town, actually in New Mexico. Tough life. You know, the thing is, all of these people had very tough childhoods, very poor, often orphaned or had lost at least one parent. And he and his mother went out west. He, he made and lost several fortunes in his lifetime. And he just had this idea of opening a club. He kind of wanted to play with these stereotypes that were out there at the time about Asians, that, you know, they have bow legs, that they don't have a sense of humor, that they can't dance. So one of the things that he did in this club, and it was something that was repeated in other clubs, was that let's say the chorus girls would come out on stage and they might be wearing you know, full-length, very traditional Chinese gowns. And they'd look very subservient and quiet and demure. And then at some point, the music would change, and they'd rip off those outer gowns, and there they'd be in their stiletto heels and their little bustiers and putting on their little top hats, and it just blew people's minds. And he loved that. He loved that idea of kind of taking this stereotype that you have and just flipping it on its head. And on the one hand, that was path-breaking, but it also involved some self-deprecating humor. Oh, yes. It must have been painful. At least I found it painful to read. I felt his pain. Yes, he would say things sometimes in his act. And, you know, fortunately, there's some recordings of him and some interviews that he did. Again, he has he passed away quite a long time ago, but his daughter gave me some of the interviews that he had done. And you can see in later life, I think he may have regretted some of what he had said as part of those acts. But I think overall, he you have to consider him a groundbreaker and somebody who really did pave the way for Asian American performers There's nothing like that today. You'd be hard-pressed to come up with the names of five Asian-American performers. The key is American. I think we could all name actors from China, but, you know, that are household names today. And so what he did then, unfortunately, it didn't carry on. But at the moment, it was really quite extraordinary. The personal stories of Grace Helen and Ruby are so different. Grace comes from a small town in Ohio. She has a father who's physically abusive. She's brilliantly talented as a dancer and runs away, ending up in San Francisco. Helen comes from this very prominent, highly respected Chinese-American family, He is the one who's sort of is Japanese-American masquerading as Chinese. And each of their stories very much reveals the prejudices that they encountered. And I was wondering if being part Chinese yourself, if you wish there were more conversation about being biracial. It seemed when Barack Obama was elected president, that seemed to open up some national dialogue about 
being biracial in terms of being black and white. We don't hear much about biracial in terms of Asian Americans. Is that part of what informs your work, Lisa? Well, it's absolutely, I would say, one of the main things that informs my work. Your listeners can't see me, but I have red hair and freckles. So, you know, at first glance, no one would think that I had any Chinese blood in me. And yet I come from a family of about 400 relatives just in Los Angeles alone. The majority of them still full Chinese. And then this just maybe a dozen of people who look like me and a little spectrum in between. And I completely agree with you about the lack of discussion that goes on in our country and in our media and even in our entertainment about multiracial people and issues. You know, to me, it always seems to be very literally black and white, that you can have that discussion as we did during the Academy Awards season about Selma and why wasn't it nominated in different categories. And I appreciate that. It's a worthwhile discussion, and it's a discussion we have to always be having. But we have so many people from all over the world living here. We really do live in a melting pot. And yet I don't think we always hear these different views or or really even look very deeply at what happens when two cultures kind of bang into each other. And the fact that during this period in history when China Dolls is set, which begins in 1938 and closes 50 years later, but really focuses mostly on pre and during World War II and post-World War II, there were so many layers of prejudice. I mean, Chinese being persecuted by Japanese and the rape of Nanking, and then it's well, complicated. And also during the war, you know, my grandparents uh, all talked, and my father was a little boy, you know, talked about how Chinese had to wear armbands, pins that said, I'm Chinese, not Japanese. You'd put placards in your store window, in your, your window of your house or in your car. Again, saying the same thing, I'm Chinese, not Japanese, because People couldn't tell the difference. You know, this one woman I interviewed, we've talked about her briefly earlier, Dorothy Toy, the Chinese Ginger Rogers. She didn't step forward, you know, and nobody found her at first to be interned because she'd had that identity for so long. No one questioned it. But she did have a friend who ratted her out because she wanted the part in the film. And that woman did get that part in the film. But when the FBI came to Dorothy, they said, we get it that you're famous. We, we understand it that you're famous. This is a woman who had played in Paris and London, Berlin, Hong Kong. She'd played all over the world. And so they said, we get it that you're famous. And so we're going to give you a choice. Either we can send you to your family in the internment camp, or you need to leave the state of California. And so she spent the rest of the war traveling through the South with her sister, who was a singer. They had this sister act, you know, and, and they traveled through the South going club to club. And what Dorothy, at age 93, said to me was, they'd never seen a Chinese, they'd never seen a Japanese, they couldn't tell the difference when we'd be safe. Author Lisa C. discussing her novel, China Dolls. 
We'll be back with more of that conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my 2015 conversation with the author Lisa C. We've been discussing her novel China Doll, set in San Francisco and based on the real lives of Chinese-American entertainers in the 1930s and 40s. This story is told from the perspective of three young female performers. One of the things I had been thinking about writing about for really years was this idea of three friends. And, uh, you know, I had written about best friends for life and Snowflower and the Secret Fan and um, sisters and Shanghai Girls, Mother Daughter and Dreams of Joy. But I'd been thinking about this idea of three friends for a long time. And I think the main reason is that my mom is in a group of three friends. They've known each other since seventh grade, and they're now 81 years old. Mm-hmm. And I watched them my entire life, this dynamic of this, these three women And I know, having watched them, that on any given day, one of them is going to be on the outs. Ah. You know, sometimes that lasts a day and sometimes it's a month. And in the case of one of them, they didn't talk to her for 20 years. But this sent me out to do research on friendship and on this particular dynamic of three. And I found a, a study that was done by NASA about how they should send people into space. Should we send two? Should we send three? And after all of their research, they determined, and all of their experiments, they determined that it's always better to send two instead of three. It didn't matter if it was, you know, men, women, a mixture, always in sets of two, because if you have three, it's inevitable that you will have that two against one. We stroll the lane together Let the rain together Sang love's refrain together And we'd both pretend It would never end I was hoping that you would talk a bit about your grandfather having, would you say he 
founded Chinatown in L.A.? My great-great-grandfather came from China to work on the railroad. He was an herbalist. And then my great-grandfather came and stayed, and he got to Los Angeles in about 1895. Los Angeles Chinatown was already there, but it was still very small. And my great-grandfather did eventually become kind of the, you know, godfather patriarch of Ah. Los Angeles Chinatown. He often supported people who started businesses. He brought in a lot of people from China, not as paper sons, but as what were called paper merchants. So, you know, this Chinese Exclusion Act had barred the immigration of all Chinese immigrants to the United States, except for four categories, and one of them was merchant. And my great-grandfather was a legitimate merchant. You've acknowledged that your paternal grandmother was a role model for you, and you were very close to her. Would you tell our listeners about her life? Right. Well, it's interesting to me. My mother, my grandmother, and my great-grandmother were all kind of orphaned in a way. They may not have actually lost their parents, but they were on their own from a very young age. Uh, My great-grandmother, Ticey Pruitt, uh, her family had come out west on the Oregon Trail in a covered wagon. They homesteaded in Oregon. You know, we know a lot about that American pioneer life and how hard it was, particularly on women. Her mother died when she was a baby. Her father died when she was seven. She was raised by brothers who were reputed to be quite cruel to her. She ran away when she was 18, couldn't afford San Francisco, went to Sacramento. No one would hire her. And she ended up in Chinatown begging my great-grandfather for a job. So uh, things, you know, one thing led to another, and they decided to get married. But it was against the law in California uh, for Chinese and Caucasians, Chinese down to a quarter, to marry in California until 1948. So what my great-grandparents did was they went to a lawyer who drew up a contract between two people as though they were forming a partnership. My grandparents went to Mexico to get married, and my own parents were only the second couple in our whole extended family to be married legally in the United States. So... My great-grandmother, a woman on her own who has no family, who, you know, marries this Chinese man. And then my grandmother, Stella, she had grown up in Waterville, Washington, a very small town. Her parents were itinerant workers. He was a barber, and her mother ran the cook tent. So, you know, when ranches were harvesting. And... They traveled from Alaska down to the Mexican border. They were always moving. And so my grandmother, from the age of six, was basically on her own. And they would just pin a little piece of paper on her blouse, you know, saying, please make sure she gets off the train at such and such town. And they just shipped her here and there where she would stay with different relatives. When she was 16, she was sent to Los Angeles to take care of an aunt who was dying of tuberculosis. 
And uh, it was around that time in high school that my grandmother met my grandfather and was kind of brought into this family. I think my grandmother Stella, I think she saw the strength of that family, and in particular, my great-grandmother Ticey, who'd come from Oregon. And she was like like an octopus on a rock. You know, she just grabbed onto it and wouldn't let go. So Stella, I always saw her as Chinese first because she had become so Chinese in this family. And sometimes people would say about her, oh, you know, you're more Chinese than we are because she just followed every tradition and she dressed in a very traditional Chinese way and she just her love of family and the way she thought about family was so very traditionally Chinese. And your grandfather's family embraced her? They they did. I think especially my great-grandmother, who saw a like soul, who saw another person who was like her. Author Lisa C. in 2015 discussing her novel, China Dolls. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Monday at 11 a.m., author Rachel Lynn Solomon will tell us about her new novel, The X-Talk. The story is set in a public radio station in Seattle, And the book is very funny. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Our engineer is Shelley Canavy. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Have a safe and good weekend. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.